As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello, welcome to The Athletic Football Tactics podcast where it's a big picture episode today. The Premier League is our focus and very specifically the very top of it. Today we'd like to present the definitive state of the Premier League title race because we are two-thirds of the way through. There are 12 games remaining. Liverpool are top on 60 points. Manchester City have 59 and Arsenal 58. Our aim today to give you a balanced measured analysis without getting distracted or waylaid by narrative and there's no one better than the athletics michael cox liam tharm and mark carey hello gents hello Ali. hello Hi. this is genuinely very exciting at the top of the premier league we're going to check out as we see it the runners and riders manchester city arsenal and table topping liverpool but first michael let's get a claret and blue elephant out the room we're not including Aston Villa in this discussion. Why is that? I think they're too far back. And I'm almost a little bit disappointed in them because, I mean, I know that's a mad thing to say. No one expected them to be part of the title race. If they finish fourth, they probably overachieve more than any team in the Premier League this year. But when you look at their performances, when they beat City 1-0 and Arsenal 1-0 back-to-back in November, December, start of December, wasn't it? And then they then went and lost points at home to Sheffield United, I think, two games later. And I think that shows what the Premier League title race is all about. It's not just about getting results against the other big boys. You can't drop points to anyone really in the bottom half, especially not at home. They're coasting along very nicely in fourth place. I think they probably will come fourth. But for me, they're not really in the title race at all now. I think you can factor in as well that they're going to have uh, Conference League knockout games to play in in terms of their their quality and their budget you'd give them you know every chance to go quite deep in that and it's hard to to juggle that as well as the league form we've seen that with teams in in recent years and I think they they suffer for a lack of squad depth which is fair enough because they've not had the time really you know on memory in particular but just even the seasons and the budget to actually build on that and build a squad that's got the depth of those backup positions I think centre-back recently has been a, a particular problem which it's probably exacerbated by their style more than most because they tend to build so short and they need that balance on both sides of having a left-footed left centre-back, a right-footed right centre-back. And I know there's you know some questions over their full-back options and the quality they have there. So they've definitely 
overperform to a large degree in the sense of I think sustaining it for this long so as Michael says it's a shame that they've fallen away a little bit but look if they finish fourth fifth I think they're kind of a bit on an island between third and fifth uh, and go quite deep in Europe that would be a phenomenal season I imagine. I think as well if you're a, a side that is in the fourth to sixth sort of position I, I know that Jamie Carragher has spoken about this before that those sorts of teams within that bracket are if you're a team that's pushing for that position you are by proxy going to be quite an inconsistent team and because Villa are in the the stage of their sort of journey under um, Unai Emery, that it's it's no surprise that they are just a little bit inconsistent. And the amount of points that they'd also have to make up on on three teams, not just one team, means that yeah, we can we can comfortably count them out. You guys are going to be giving plenty of insight on the top three as we go, but let's start with some numbers, Mark. There are a number of places that will provide projections, predictions based on models built in house. What's your favourite? What's your go-to predictions model? I always go to Opta. I think their sort of reliability overall has been proven. I think that in general, prediction models are difficult because the the reason that we watch football is is not so that we can predict what's going on. There's there's still so many games to play, so much drama to be had, and the the model itself is obviously going to be updated with every result. So it's going to change between now and the end of the season. But the current prediction is that Manchester City have the the edge of uh, of finishing first. 51% chance that uh, Man City will will win the title. Liverpool 35% and Arsenal 14%. So, you know, the, the, all of these probabilities are based on historical and recent performances and they sort of weight it accordingly in their simulations. But I think it's it's fair to say that Manchester City have the, the highest likelihood of, of winning the title because historically that they've shown that they they rarely lose or even draw many games of football. And we can obviously come on to why the the vibe, the energy coming out of Manchester City isn't quite as sort of overwhelming as, as previous seasons. But you do look at it in terms of the, the hard, cold facts and they are likely to win a lot of their remaining games. So, yeah, they've got the edge uh, of the three. City is the most likely winners at this stage, Michael. Does that fit your own thoughts? Yeah, they've got a track record of hitting form at the right time. I think that's been very obvious in the the last three that they've won. I think it's worth pointing out that they got to the midway point of the season, having not fielded De Bruyne and Haaland in the same team since the opening day, when I think De Bruyne lasted 20 minutes or something. We saw in midweek at Luton how effective that can be. De Bruyne setting up Haaland for four goals is quite incredible. And I, I basically think they've got the best starting eleven. I'd say by a fair distance, actually. The individuals they've got in that, I think Rodri in particular, as long as he's in the team, City basically don't lose this season. That's the very obvious pattern. I can't really identify many weaknesses at the moment. I think at this time last year, we could make a case that they were so desperate to win the Champions League that they might have put all their eggs in that basket. Now, in the end, they didn't. They spread it perfectly and they won all three competitions. But because... They just don't have that that missing trophy, basically. I think they've got a, a really good chance of actually winning both the big competitions again. I think they're the strongest team in the Champions League as well and favourites for the Premier League. One one thing I'd finally just say on the, the prediction side of things is that it is obviously objective. It's designed to be objective, but there's so many things that it can't account for quite in the same way in, in terms of the model. So, yeah, Michael mentioned Haaland and De Bruyne coming back and essentially being quite fresh compared to a lot of the the players in the Premier League because of them being out with, with injury. But 
things like injuries to come potentially or fixture schedules and we'll come on to Manchester City's in particular which I think is interesting you know these predictions think logically but there's certain things that you maybe can't quite account for and you obviously can't account for some things that just defy logic at times it's worth noting that in terms of the overall predictions surely there's still an element of subjectivity in the fact that in in building your model you need to decide what the inputs are for your model and in order to do that you need to decide what you think is important and contributes to winning football matches. And there are lots of different things that you can input, whether it's underlying numbers, uh, results, squad strength, things of that nature. But you still have, someone has to decide, Mark, to what extent you weight those, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And those are the things that you can treat as objective and then weight them accordingly. But yeah, you can't, you can't account for emotional uh, the emotional pull of of Liverpool with with Jurgen Klopp leaving or to a certain extent momentum outside of the sort of the obvious things like results Liverpool winning the the Carabao Cup at the weekend just gone won't be accounted for in a Premier League prediction model but it's really you know galvanized the the whole squad the academy are, are getting a lot of plaudits etc that those things are just really difficult to to quantify so yes you can weight the objective side of things accordingly but yeah, there's, there's so many things that just go on in the background that we uh, we can't account for, should we say. Yeah, momentum, famously that thing that you can't measure. And I've got a bit of a bee in my bonnet about the word overall in a football context because I think there isn't a particularly clear definition for it either, to be honest. But that's probably a discussion for another time. Uh, Liam, out of the three teams that we're discussing, City have scored the fewest and conceded the most only by a couple of goals here and there. Uh, is there anything in that? I don't think so. And I think Arsenal may be an example of that recently where they've gone on a run at the end of December or the start of the new year where they, you know, were really struggling to score. In fact, we did a podcast, I think, largely based around that on, you know, what do you take away from that in albeit a small sample? But as as Mark and Michael have said, that small samples matter in a title race because one or two games can define a whole season or end up being the difference. And it's interesting when you compare that with, with City and and there's a good piece from from Sam Lee, our City correspondent, and um, that's out, which sort of touches on some of City's, you know, just just their state of play more broadly. And Guardiola was sort of asked about them defensively that they haven't kept a huge number of clean sheets. There's been a lot of games that they've won, sort of two one or three one. So you know they've still won it, and they had a couple of I think consecutive one 0 wins as well at the start of the calendar year. So it depends how much you want to read into that because you then had Arsenal recently and if I exclude the Porto game, which was arguably another example of how they can be shut down and, and we'll come on to that. They've then been scoring for fun in recent weeks and you score four, five, six. You go, okay, that's that's a way of winning a game where you can crack a game open with a, a set-piece goal and they've been phenomenal at that. It's been a bit of a stick to beat them with, I think, but uh, it's a, a useful thing and then you go on and you know you really put teams to the sword when they come out at you. Um, so I think, as we often say, it's it's the adaptability and the ability to win games in different ways. So you can go and you know win one at Bournemouth when they, they press you high and it's a difficult game. You can then put five or six past the team when they come out at you and they press. So it's yeah, it's it's the cliche thing, isn't it, of of you know winning without playing well, but I think winning playing different types of opponents in different contexts of different games. Which of these teams do you think is playing the best right now? Who's in the, the best form, not just in terms of results, but in terms of what we can measure in terms of performance levels, Liam? I'd go back to Arsenal just because family they're scoring recently. I think it's it's a real, and if we're speaking about momentum being a bit tenuous, then this is probably tenuous as well, <laughs> but I think it shows a lot of personality from a squad who, and again, clubs will say they don't listen to the noise externally or, or whatnot, but a team which did really, really well for a big chunk of last season, then fell away knowing that 
all the narratives that will be written about them because look they are still human beings will be okay they got this far last season and then wheels came off is this going to happen again this season of a squad which is fairly young i'm not going to say an experience because a lot of them have got lots of good top flight experience but i guess a title race is is fairly specific and a fairly young coach as well although he's been there now he's one of the longest serving coaches in the premier league their ability i think in terms of being effective is why I would say being the best. I think they're not necessarily the the most efficient, although they have been in recent weeks. They're not always the most aesthetically pleasing to watch, partly because teams now try to stop them playing in aesthetic ways and, and getting at them with their wingers. But I think in terms of being the best, I'd say it's, it's finding the most optimal solutions. They are cracking games open with set pieces and that is working because they've got great set piece takers. They've got guys that know how to attack. They've got a good set piece coach who is formulating really good routines. And until teams can solve now the set piece problem, like they solved largely the, the wingers problem, it's going to keep working. Just on the note of Arsenal's defensive foundation um, and the numbers to go with it, they're conceding just 2.5 shots on target per game, which is the, the fewest in the league. And it's just outstanding how few that is, and this is a, a shout out to Duncan Alexander here because he gave me, he equipped me with this stat earlier in the week and uh, he wanted to make sure that I used it, that Leicester City were the last title winning team who did not concede the fewest shots on target per 90 minutes, which is obviously in 2015-16. So it shows just how common it is for the, the best defence to to win the title, which obviously plays into Arsenal's, uh, or the positivity surrounding Arsenal. All the numbers point to, to Arsenal having strong title credentials with their strong defensive foundation, but looked more broadly as well at their expected goals against. It's just 0.7 per 90 minutes. So they're giving up chances worthy of less than one goal per game, which is also the uh, the best in the league this season. Um, and since 2018-19, only two teams have had a better record um, in a whole season defensively. And that was Manchester City in 2018-19 and, of course, Manchester City again in 2021-22 season. And, of course, both seasons they, they won the title. So, yeah, from a, from a defensive perspective, if Arsenal don't win the league this season, it won't be because they... They bottled it or anything like that. They've been so much stronger than last season. They've built really well. It will just be, you know, for, for reasons that we'll come on to of being maybe outdone by a, a stronger Manchester City or Liverpool team. How do you know it might be that they bottle it? Yeah. You can't say you can't say yet. Well, yeah, I suppose that part of it is maybe not the, the strongest bit, but they've they've been They've got so Everton strong. on the last day. Imagine against a dice yeah. side. They gotta win it to to win the title. Yeah, true. They've been so strong consistently across the whole season. So yeah, well maybe that does make my point even stronger that they might bottle it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you mentioned about Manchester City in twenty eighteen nineteen and their defensive record. I remember Guardiola so I think he said the, the proudest he was was after a game away at Bournemouth where City didn't allow Bournemouth a single shot in the entire mm -hmm. game. That sums up what he likes. He loves that control. And even though Arsenal didn't achieve that against Newcastle, I thought it was a similar kind of performance in the sense of the first half, they just didn't let Newcastle out of their own half. And actually, considering how Arsenal, you know, how dominant they were, I almost thought they should have created more chances and scored more goals. The goals tended to come from set pieces, a couple of weird kind of pinball goals but in terms of the overall performance and how little they allowed Newcastle to get into the game it was probably the best I've seen Arsenal play this season and considering we're speaking about you know what happened last year they they did fade it at pretty much this time I think that was a really promising performance from them in in pretty much every aspect just a number to go with that Arsenal regained possession 14 times against Newcastle and that was the most in a Premier League game under Mikel Arteta so it just speaks to your point there Michael
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. And while we're talking about Arsenal, should we remind ourselves that Mark Carey brought an article out into the world at the start of December when Arsenal had been winless in three in the league. They'd only scored two goals in that time and there was... I think Arsenal fans were a little rattled about their situation at the top of the pitch. And Mark was very calm, very clear. Don't worry about this. You don't need to sign a striker. That's not the issue here. Arsenal have scored 25 goals in six league games since then. They've scored three or more in five of their last six. And they did that without buying a striker. So, Mark, well done. That's aged very, very well, very, very quickly. Uh, Look... While accepting that these three teams are excellent, uh, let's get that out of the way first. They are, all three of them, likely to win almost all of their games from now until the end of the season. But as part of the exercise to work out who might win the thing, I'd like to ask you to pick some holes in these excellent teams. And I'd like to know between the three of them where we think the sort of tactical concerns would be, uh, Michael, perhaps starting with uh, the team, according to Opta, most likely to win it, Manchester City. Well, I think the theme really since Haaland came in has been the fact they don't control games as well as they used to. And Guardiola has been quite explicit about that. I mean, one of the nice things about Guardiola is I think he's very honest about the tactics and that I think he's he doesn't try to keep his cards close to his chest. He's quite honest and open about analysing his teams. And he's pointed out a lot that if De Bruyne gets the ball, De Bruyne wants to play balls in behind, Haaland wants to go in behind. And if that works, great. But if not, then it's going to come back at, at City very quickly. They do play a a certain way defensively now, often with four proper defenders, I would say, and Rodri, who's a brilliant screen in front of them. But I think things in midfield can be a little bit open. And uh, some of their poorer performances this season, I would say the defeat against Wolves, for example, is when they've looked a little bit flimsy in midfield. They're going to dominate games. I just don't think they control games as well as they used to. And I think there will be one or two games where they'll have problems with against inferior teams who have a couple of good counter-attacking players. Completely agree with this. Um, there's a great stat from, from Sam Lee's piece that I already mentioned that they've conceded six goals from fast breaks this season in the league, which is a an opto-proxy for counter-attacking from, from deep specifically. For context, last season they conceded three goals. This is specific in the league, so you're looking already at twice as many with, with a period left to play. Um, 
sure that's still you know quite a very specific type of goal and the very sort of set criteria but i think it might be partly reflection one of guado likes to chop and change but i think again it's still been a case of trying to find balance and as michael says last season was tactically tweaking you know to fit holland in and knowing what you're sort of shaping it around but this season it's almost finding a plan b when you haven't got De Bruyne and Holland, and then trying to go back to sort of plan A and go, how do we fit that around what we need right now um, and the players and the personnel we've got? So it's partly shown in that change from Grealish to Doku, I think, is a great example of that, of someone who could be really, really devastating. But in the same way that Grealish, his his default really seems to be to retain the ball, take lots of touches to dribble inside or go backwards. You know, there's a reason, and we'll probably still see it in the Champions League like we did last season, where, you know, City will play their their ball dominant or their their controlling midfielders in, in those big games where, you know, Bernardo came in, even when Mares was was absolutely flying in the second half of last season, um, will still come in to give them that control. So again, we're speaking specifically about um the league here. But yeah, I think City, and that's why I mentioned their lack of clean sheets, I think, comes as a reflection of that. They signed quite a few dribblers in the summer with Guardiola clearly just trying to add in that extra layer like he always does. It can go both ways at times. That Sam Lee piece was really interesting as well. I read it this morning and it, he had a really cool quirk of a, a stat that said that they've conceded a goal from the first shot on target faced 14 times in all compositions this season which you could put down to it being a bit odd a bit of a quirk a little bit unlucky for you know whatever reason but I think that's to, to both of your point by design the fact that they're not controlling the games and it's becoming slightly transitional and they are weak in the transitional moment so it's that they maybe don't concede a lot of shots and I think again per 90 minutes they've conceded the the fewest shots in the the Premier League this season but it's the the quality of the shots that they do face it's no coincidence then that the the yeah the quality of those shots and the chances that they give up are more likely to be scored by the opposition and then you're either in a, a drawing game state or a losing game state and that lack of control then then does go so um yeah what seems like it may be a, a quirk of a stat actually has sort of reason behind it I guess based on what you guys are saying I'm looking at the four-day period where they travelled to Arsenal on the 31st of March and then to Aston Villa also on the 3rd of April and, and Villa in particular, if we're talking about transition threats, if we're talking about teams that they've struggled against already this season, uh, that one should be circled, I think. In terms of Liverpool, our, our league leaders at the moment, Mark, what might be their kryptonite? Well, from a tactical perspective, I think it, for a completely different uh, reason, I think it's also their their vulnerability in transitional moments. They really like to to open the game up and make it a bit of a, a basketball game. And more often than not, they are the better side at exposing those transitional moments. But I guess you have to take the rough with the smooth and realise that, you know, when teams do come at them and have more sort of direct attacks, then, then they're also vulnerable. So, for example, Liverpool have... 113 direct attacks. We've spoken many times about that being a proxy for counter-attacking. So 113 direct attacks is more than anyone else in the league, but 81 direct attacks conceded is the third most in the league. So it's not like they are, you know, opening the game up and sort of shutting it down at the back. It is, you know, they do have that the vulnerability. And we've seen it across multiple games recently that the goalkeeper, be it Alisson or Kelleher, have bailed Liverpool out at times and that's obviously the the point of being an elite team and having elite goalkeepers to be able to you know bail you out in those key moments but they do leave the the back door open and even in the FA Cup this week there was some really big chances um, that they gave up and Southampton probably should have scored two maybe three of them and for reasons I won't go into obviously Liverpool's current squad there was you know reason for that because it wasn't their first 11 but I think it's definitely been a trend um, this season that Liverpool have 
opened the game up, but that transitional, they basically back their their players who are often better than the opposition's players to to expose that transition. But sometimes you've got to be careful that if they do concede the first goal, then um, then they'll be chasing it. And that's where you just get a couple of draws here and there, which in a title race can obviously be fatal. I think it's a, a very different team and, and squad largely to when they, they did win the title. So it's not always a, a perfect comparison, but of, of the three contenders we're speaking about here they've been ahead at half time in the fewest number of games this season so that's nine Arsenal okay has only one more with 10 Arsenal have really sort of been dragged for that I think a bit this season not being able to you know start fasting games partly because they did so well last season City have been ahead in 13 of their 26 so half the time for City and again maybe this is unfair because it's a team playing slightly differently to when they did win the league but I think part of their success before was being so efficient at being ahead in games and they have worked around that they've scored an awful lot of late goals 23 in the final well I'd say final 15 minutes, but it's mm. more than that with, with extra time or stoppage time, sorry. So beyond the 76th minute. So they've had more goals scored beyond the 76th minute than the entire first half, which I think you look at them solving problems really well continuously. The Bournemouth game was a great example when you know Klopp was able to, to shuffle the front three. I know they've had a ridiculous number of goal involvements from substitutes, which are good things, but I think you want them to have a bit more balance at times um, to do that as well, but also have games where you are really sort of taking a team early on and, you know, you, you're efficient, you're going 2-0 up, you're, you're pinning them back. There was a great example earlier this season, early September at home to Aston Villa on a Sunday where they uh, they went uh, in front early on, pushed them back. And, you know, this is a Villa side that had a really, really good start to the season. But I don't think I've seen enough of that from Liverpool this season. And they don't always need to do that. But I think it's generally something we see of title winners where they can do that to teams um, and just be so devastating. And then, Liam, what might be the weaknesses in Arsenal's Arsenal? <laughs> I still think they're the most specific attacking team. They've shown some more flexibility, I think, in being able to use Havertz in different roles. And Trossard, particularly as a, a false nine, has been a really good solution. So they're, they're finding more ways. But I think they're still quite reliant on attacking through those wingers in a certain way and then finding those options at, at fullback of either someone coming inside or, or getting on the overlap. And I think Porto showed that specifically as a game where when they do come up against a really tight, compact mid-block, they can struggle in open play sometimes. The best team in the, in the league or the title winners tend to dominate set pieces. That's been a trend, but I think they tend to not be as reliant on them as Arsenal have been this season. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. What about non-tactical concerns, Michael? Well, I'd still argue that Arsenal are the most reliant on their key players of those three title contenders. I think their squad depth is good. It's much better than it was a couple of years ago. But I still think if they lost Saka or Odegaard or Rice for a significant period of time, I think it looks like a very different team. And I think when you look at how City have coped without 
Haaland and De Bruyne. Liverpool have got through a really tough period without Salah and Alexander-Arnold, I would say in particular. There's been some others out as well. I'm just not sure Arsenal would withstand that well enough to get the most points of these three sides. Yeah, I mean, Michael mentioned injuries there. With with Liverpool, to, to a certain extent, I know that every... Every squad has injuries across the season, but in recent weeks especially, and obviously we saw it in the, the Carabao Cup final, just how many first-team injuries they had. So Alexander-Arnold, Alison Becker, Gravenberch got injured on the day, Curtis Jones, Jota, Matip, Nunes, Salah, Soboslai, Endo came off and has, has been injured since. I don't know if it's maybe touch and go for the next couple of weeks. Then they've got some more academy players like Ben Doak and Stefan Bajetic as well. It's just... If if anything sort of non-tactical is to sort of derail the the rest of the season, I think it will be the fact that they've just got so many players on the, the treatment table. And then the obvious other narrative is that could the emotion maybe just get the better of Liverpool? I think there was the high profile one from 10 years ago now where the, the emotion of nearly reaching a, a title win for the first time in a long time just got the better of Liverpool and everything surrounding Jurgen Klopp's exit. Maybe there could be something there. I don't think that would. I think mainly it would be uh, down to injuries if anything does derail Liverpool's title push. I mean, quickly on that, Michael, what we might call the the narrative-based approach. You've got Klopp's final season, Pep's been there and done it, Arteta and Arsenal going for their first title. For you, what's actually important here? Like, what actually matters and to what extent do, do these things help or hinder teams? Yeah, I think the pressure can get to, if you like, new sides who aren't accustomed to challenging for the titles. I think maybe that did affect Arsenal last year. I think the interesting thing is that in league football recently, we haven't seen many examples of a team going for their first title after a long time and it being an actual fight. Because if you look at Liverpool, they basically won it by Boxing Day. Napoli last year were about 20 points clear in February. Even when you go back to City for the first time, and though it might sound weird these days, City had a reputation as kind of bustlers almost. I mean, like how they lost the FA Cup final in Wigan in, in 2013. The final day of 2012 with the Aguero goal wasn't exactly convincing. They needed two stoppage time goals against a you know nearly a relegated team. So I do think that is an issue for Arsenal. They do have to prove that they can cope with the pressure. Leicester 2016 is kind of a similar example. Okay, they got over the line, but there were some games where it was quite obvious they were feeling it. So, yeah, I think the emotion for Liverpool obviously comes into play. Personally, I don't think that is a negative thing. I think it's a net positive, but I think at some pressured moments, things can get a bit out of hand. Again, I'd compare it to the Gerrard game against Chelsea in 2014, not the slip, but the fact that he responded to it probably a bit too emotionally. And... You know, from City's perspective, I don't really see any reason to be negative about them here. It's worth pointing out they are going for four in a row, which would be historic. Only four teams have won three in a row. Huddersfield in the 20s, Arsenal in the 30s, Liverpool in the 80s, and Manchester United twice under Ferguson. I don't really see many signs of complacency creeping in. And I just talk about that a lot. It's something that I don't think you can really understand too much as outsiders. But it's clearly a thing when you have to be at 100% every week. But I haven't seen any signs of that so far. We occasionally like to explore the underlying numbers, lift the lid and explore its its murky underworld to see if there are any clues as to who might be the sturdiest, who might be the most sustainable uh, from here on out. Are there any clues? 
Well, one method that I've spoken about before is to look at expected goal difference because you can see across a, a longer period rather than actually just looking at points, which are kind of absolute, looking at a team's chances created and chances uh, conceded and the quality of them and weigh them up uh, against the, the league table. And there's only three teams who have a, an expected goal difference um, of one or above, and that's, of course, the, the current top three. So they are out on their own as a, as a top three. And then there's not too much to decide between them, really. We're talking like small decimal points. So I'm reluctant to really kind of place too much importance on that difference. But if you were to push me, Arsenal do have the best expected goal difference of the three, and that's owing to their their strong defensive foundation that I've already spoken about. But from an attacking perspective, Arsenal have the third best non-penalty goals and expected goals. So it's it's definitely clear that the, it's their defensive numbers that are the strongest. So in order of expected goal difference, it goes Arsenal, then Manchester City, then Liverpool. Whether or not that will actually be the the order of the league table, I'm not willing to stick my neck out on the line, but I'm just giving you the facts. Anything notable in the three-team schedule, guys? Two fixtures that absolutely stand out come in March. Manchester City playing away at Liverpool and taking on Arsenal as well. Huge games in the context of the title race. There may be a school of thought that big games are not to be scared of. If you win them, then you give yourself an even better chance of winning the title. Liam, anything notable in the schedules? I think Liverpool specifically, if they continue to go deeper in Europe, are going to be playing Thursday, Sunday, which, okay, they've you know had to play that way because they underperformed last season compared to what they would want to do. But I remember, I think this being a thing, I could be misremembering, but with Tottenham in, when they were chasing Leicester that season, being a bit disgruntled that just their, their schedule and playing Europa League on a Thursday, then playing on a Sunday as a, as a result meant pretty much every game Leicester would get the chance to play before them and they constantly be playing catch-up so you don't really have the chance to put pressure on your position um, and look there's positives and negatives to that in the sense that one you get a chance to go deep in Europe and two if another team slips up you know you've got momentum going into a game but obviously it then puts I hate the phrase like fate in the hands of X team but it gives them the advantage knowing we get to play first we get to be in control um, so that might be a slight wrinkle to it to consider and realistically I think looking at the quality you'd expect Liverpool to go quite deep uh, in the Europa League especially because Liverpool play away to Sparta Prague in on the Thursday before playing against Manchester City so even that alone could be a, a massive swing and it's funny I look at all of all three of their their fixtures and I look at Manchester City and I'm like well that looks like a, a tough run Manchester United then Liverpool then uh, I think the Brighton game's actually been rearranged because of the FA Cup, but still they've got to play Brighton, Arsenal, Aston Villa. And they're like, okay, well, they've got the hardest fixtures. And then you look at Liverpool's and they end by playing Spurs, Villa and Wolves, who we've spoken about before. And it's quite clear they're having a really strong season. And then Arsenal got away trips to Manchester City, Brighton, Wolves, Manchester United and Spurs as well. So there's so much, so much that could still change because they all do have tricky fixtures, I think. The order of the fixtures can sometimes be the, the thing that could swing it, but they've all still got so many tough games ahead. So still a long way to go in this, basically. OK, so much to think about, so much analysis presented. Let's finish with some focused thoughts. And the way I'd like to frame it is to come to you, Mark, first and ask you if Liverpool are to win the Premier League title in May as much as it will be because the football gods have decided that that's the, the strongest narrative, Klopp's final season, uh, outside of, of the vibes and narrative, uh, what will be the reason in your eyes? 
I think it, it alludes to to what Liam mentioned before that you could think of it as a positive or a negative in terms of their their use of their their bench and I guess more broadly saying that they have the most varied attack and able to to switch things within game to find solutions to to issues that they may be facing within the game. So Liam mentioned about the the sheer number of goal involvements that have been scored or assisted in Liverpool's game. So. Liverpool substitutes have accounted for 39 goal involvements. So goals and assists in all competitions this season. I think that stat is actually from the, the weekend that's just gone. So maybe slightly changed ever so slightly, but that's comfortably more than any other Premier League side. So their ability to yeah, influence games with changes could be the, uh, the difference maker. And Liam, if Arsenal win the title, it will be because... I think their defence is going to stay so strong and that can compensate for possibly any shortcomings that they do have in attack. I think the real litmus test for that will be, we saw last season when they went to, you know, the Etihad in a what was largely painted as, as a title decider in some form, is not when teams just play short in the press and do let them press them, but when that is going well and they say, OK, now we're going to go long and we're going to play either onto the number nine or go over the press entirely, how they kind of respond to that. And Michael, if City make it four titles in a row, Pep Guardiola would be the first manager ever to achieve that and the reason will be? Well, I think they have got the best starting eleven, And in particular, I think they've got the best holding midfielder in Rodri. I think they've got the best chance creator in De Bruyne. And they've got the best goal scorer in Holland. And as long as those three are fit, I think they've got a very good chance of winning it. <laughs> that was a very strong answer. I must say that might have just swung it for me. Uh, if I'm sort of picking based on what you guys have presented to me there, I'm probably going with Opta, boringly, and, and going for a, a Manchester City title win. It's been really, really great to hear you guys break down what could be the most exciting title race in recent history, given the nature of it given the fact there are three teams only separated by two points and how rare that is, uh, we hope that it lives up to the billing and we'll be here every step of the way on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. We love hearing from you, whether it's on Twitter or, even better, on the episode page on the Athletic website. Subscribers can comment on each specific episode and I'd love to hear if anything the guys have presented today has changed your mind or maybe focused your mind on who you think will be lifting the Premier League title in May. Make sure you're reading everything on The Athletic site, theathletic.com forward slash tactics, the best place to go if you'd like to sign up and consume the run-in via the medium of athletic football writing and subscribe to the podcast feed as well so that you get next week's episode as soon as it drops. Thanks for listening and go very well. The Athletic.